Good morning. <clears throat> Technology is supposed to make our lives easier, Julie. <clears throat> That's what they say. Anyway, I'm starting to not believe it anymore. Uh, we actually were planning some, some upgrades and stuff in this room over the next few months, uh, and so there, there probably will be at least one week in the next maybe three months or so that we'll have worship and heritage for one week in the old sanctuary. Uh, unplugged with no live streaming and all those kinds of things. And my fear is that we might love it so much that we never go back. Uh, so uh, we won't tell you when that week is, but some, one of these days you're going to come in and you're going to see a sign that says, go right when you walk in the door. And we'll just have a, a wonderful kind of harken back, maybe a throwback you know, Sunday to the, the way things once were uh, in that old sanctuary. And so that'll be a great day with no technology and how joyful that will be uh, for all of us, especially for Julie and I and those folks in the back. Uh, to get a well-deserved day of rest. Uh, there's a, a novelist by the name of Michael Hopf, and he, he wrote a book called Those Who Remain. It's this apocalyptic novel. You've probably never heard of it, and if you have, great. If not, totally irrelevant. But he has this quote in it that many people probably have heard recited in some way, shape, or form, and it goes like this. It says, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. So the pattern is that when things are going well, when things are hard, it creates a strength within us. There's a resiliency that's built up. People tend to be stronger to get through, and then what happens is those strong people create what we consider good times, times of rest and peace, and in those times of rest and peace, there's a weakness that's created. There's a complacency that comes, and as a result of that, the weakness that is created then comes back to create hard times, and the cycle continues. Now, this is an overgeneralization. This is not something that is true of all people, and certainly we're talking about men in the quote, but we could talk about everybody. But there is a certain level of truth to this quote in the societies that we've known throughout history and even in the modern day, right? We can think back to the, the last 100 years as a, as a country. Anytime there has been hard times, there's been a resiliency that is built up. There's been a unity that is created. The things that we tend to bicker about in society, whether it's political or otherwise, tend to go away when there's lives at stake, <clears throat> right? This country, the last time I remember this country being truly united was for probably, I don't know, maybe 16 or 17 days after 9-11, right? And then the divisiveness started to come back and creep in again. But we, we have this pattern that, that happens that we see in a lot of ways and, and so the ease that comes when we have a strong society tends to create a moral complacency and a work ethic complacency. When there's nothing big to fight over, we fight over the little stuff. <clears throat> and when we do that, society begins to disintegrate into chaos in most ways, economically, morally, spiritually, what have you. Right? For the next 12 weeks, all the way until Advent, we are going to spend, it works out nicely because there's 12 of them and we have 12 weeks, we're going to survey all of the Bible's minor prophets. Right? There are 12 minor prophets that we see, and we're going to survey and look at each one of them over the course of the next 12 weeks. Prophets are God's messengers. They were around during a, towards the end of our time in the Old Testament, Right? There's a 400-year gap between when the Old Testament ends and when the Gospels begin. But in that kind of, in those days after and during king rulership, 
you started to see prophets emerge. And we have some major ones, and we talk about them a lot when we get to Advent and Christmas, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But then we had these minor prophets. And they're not minor because they're less important. They're just minor simply for the one reason that their books are really short. Right? So Ezekiel, imagine covering Ezekiel in one sermon. Impossible. Cannot be done. Ezekiel could really barely be covered in a whole year's worth of sermons. Right? One of these days we'll tackle it, and half of you will leave the church, but that's okay. But for now, we're going to look at these 12 minor prophets. Each week we'll examine one of them. We'll do a survey of the book. We'll look at kind of what the major themes are, what's happening, what the character is, and, and what it is that God is trying to say to Israel and to us through this specific prophet and the way that they praise or condemn or foretell the destruction of or rescue of God's people in their own time and place. Right? And so these, these men prophesied in the midst of various points of, of, of cycles in, in history of the Israelite people. And part of why I mentioned that quote is because the, the cycle in that quote, one of those four cycles, tends to apply to each of the prophets, right? And so today, when we're looking at the first one, Israel had and was living out this before-mentioned quote in a way. They were in the point where we would say, weak men create hard times, right? That's the story of where we are today. And so we're going to start this morning by looking at the prophet Hosea, right? My hope is that each week we'll spend some time, uh, you know, looking at the book in a survey form, and that you would go home after today and, and spend the next week reading the actual book. They are short. You can tackle them rather quickly. Hosea has 14 chapters, but they're, they're pretty short chapters. They're not very long, as you'll see. We'll read two whole chapters today alone. Right? They're not particularly long. You'll be able to get through it fairly easily. And so my hope is that the sermon each week would set you up to then be able to go home and do some, some reading and further study on your own, and that we might be able to gain an understanding of all of the 12 minor prophets so that when we head into Advent, and we start to look at fulfilled prophecy that we might see some things come back up during Christmas time that we've learned over the course of the next 12 weeks. Amen? All right. So to look at the minor prophets, there's, there's first a, a bit of a history that we have to dig into because it matters a lot when we look at prophets. And so many of you may know this, but if you don't, um, the, the kingdom of Israel was one united kingdom. And, and around 925 B.C., before Christ, that kingdom split in half. There was turmoil in the ranks and it split in half. It happened under a king named Rehoboam. That was David's grandson. It goes David, Saul, or David, Solomon, and Rehoboam, right? And so Rehoboam, 925-ish BC, the kingdom splits into north and south. And in the north, we have the kingdom of Israel, and the capital of that became Samaria. And in the south, we have the kingdom of Judah, and the capital of that was Jerusalem. And so when the kingdom splits, the north and south are, are now totally separated. And in the north, the first king that we see is a king named Jeroboam. That'll come up again in a second. Jeroboam is the first king. And generally, as a rule, what we see is that there is more faithfulness in the southern kingdom than in the northern kingdom. Right? That's part of why they fall second, not first. That doesn't mean that they're faithful. They're also a mess. But they are they're generally considered to be a more faithful kingdom than the north. Okay? So that's where we are in the span of history. And this is important because each prophet serves in a very different context. Each of these 12 has to be placed, number one, in which kingdom they were in when they were speaking and prophesying. 
And number two, the proper time period. Right? Each of those kingdoms was exiled eventually. They were punished by God. The north fell to Assyria, and then the south fell to Babylon, and they were exiled respectively for a whole length of time. And so when we look at each prophet, we have to ask, well, where were they, north or south? And did they prophesy before the exile, during the exile, or after the exile? Okay? So Hosea is a northern prophet. He's in the kingdom of Israel, uh, and he would have been prophesying in the vicinity of like 953 to 928-ish BC. There's some argument about the exact years there. But it would have been during the rule of Jeroboam II. This is 200 years after the split. Different Jeroboam, right? And what's interesting about Hosea is when he opens the book, he identifies himself, even though he's a northern prophet, by the kings of the south. He said, I'm a prophet reigning during the time of, and he starts naming some of the southern kingdoms like Uzziah and Hezekiah in Judah, even though he is in the northern kingdom. And so he is speaking to the less faithful kingdom. He's speaking to the kingdom that will be exiled first. And he's speaking towards the end of his time, only about 10 years before Assyria actually comes in and, and just demolishes the northern kingdom and exiles them. Right? So Samaria is conquered somewhere right around the vicinity of 722. And so when his, his ministry ends around 728, so you've got six, six to ten years, depending on how you want to look at it, from the end of um, Hosea's prophesying, warning the people of God, until we get to the point where that kingdom is, in fact, judged and taken over under God's guidance and authorship. He, he permits Assyria to have that kingdom completely fall and have exile take place. So Hosea's prophesying to the worst of the two kingdoms before the punishment and the exile, right? Not during, not after, but before. And the Lord comes to Hosea, and he uses him in a very hard way. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Hosea when we start to read the opening verses of, of his book. Because, man, I can tell you, I, I do not want to be this guy. Um, but the Lord re, uh, comes to him and tells him that he's going to be a prophet, and he commands him to do something that would be hard for any single one of us to do. So let's stand together, and we'll read the first chapter of Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord. Hosea 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. People, if you're going to have a daughter, pay attention. And the Lord said to call her name No Mercy. Excellent girl name. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number 
of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. We'll stand again in, in just a little bit for, for chapter 3. But, so God comes to, to Hosea. Gentlemen, pay attention. Imagine this in your life. And he says, you are, you are to take for yourself a wife of whoredom. Essentially, he's saying, go find yourself a prostitute to marry. A woman who is chronically unfaithful, who constantly is seeking out the company of other men. That's what I want you to go find. Go find yourself one of those types of women and marry her. Take her as your wife. And Hosea probably went, what? Right? How many of you could imagine the Lord? Maybe you, you know, you're not yet married. You're looking for a spouse. You're trying to find love. And God says, listen, you're going to have a wife. Um, one caveat, though. This is the kind of wife that you got to go find. And you go, no. Who, who amongst us would willingly begin a relationship with someone they know will be chronically unfaithful in a blatant and sinful and regardless way that doesn't seem to consider their feelings at all, right? Now, there, there are people that I know that stay in toxic relationships, but those relationships generally didn't start out that way, right? There's something that holds them and grabs them. It might be unhealthy, but, but there's a reason. But Hosea's not, not saying, like, here's your wife. She's going to become like this. God's saying, go find yourself someone you already know will be this way. And so Hosea is faithful and obedient. And he goes and he finds himself a woman named Gomer. And he marries Gomer. By the way, if, if, like I said, if you're looking for girl names, there's just some strong, awesome girl name ideas rocking in this passage. Um, Old Testament's just a treasure trove of names. So Gomer as a girl or not my people is a pretty great one, I would say. All right? And so he takes his wife, Gomer, and they start to have children. And the, the first one that we see is, is Jezreel, right? And, and the name Jezreel means scattered. So that he's, he's naming the first son of Hosea scattered, essentially. And, and it also harkens back and he explains a little bit about Jehu and the, the valley of Jezreel. Here's what happened. There was a man named Jehu when there was a king in the north named Ahab. And Ahab was one of the worst kings ever. Right? So when the kingdom split, one of the kings in the north was Ahab. He was a wicked king. And Jehu took him out. And Jehu went a little further than God might have wanted him to go. You can read about this in the books of Kings. Jehu ended up not just getting rid of Ahab, but Jehu wiped out Ahab's entire family. He went on kind of a killing rampage and spree and just went a little AWOL at the end there. And so God wasn't okay with that. And so part of the naming here is, number one, Jezreel is scattered. It's a symbolism for the people that will be scattered. But it's also a very specific name because Jehu was in the valley of Jezreel, a place. And so it was kind of a word play of the Lord saying, look, I'm going to judge Israel. And when I do, by the way, I'm specifically also going to judge Jehu and his household for what he has done back then. It's just a, a little, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge all of Israel, and while I'm at it, I'm going to specifically judge this one guy too, right? And so the name is kind of a signifier of both of those things, right? He butchered the whole family. He's going to feel the wrath of God when Israel's punishment comes a few years from this passage being proclaimed. Right? 
The next two children, I think, require a little bit less explanation, right? You've renamed your, your, your daughter, not my people. Can you imagine growing up, like when you're like five, you start asking questions. Like, why am I named not my people? Well, because God proclaims <laughs> that the people of Israel are not his people anymore. And he's using the name of Hosea's daughter to make that abundantly known. And then we go even beyond that for the third child. Or sorry, the, well, the third child was not my people. The second one is no mercy. That's a harsh name too, right? And so what's happening here? God is starting to, to name Hosea's kids after the things that are going to happen, after the things that are a reality for Israel as a kingdom, as a nation, right? And so that's kind of where we end chapter 1. And then we have a small little proclamation of hope to come, but that's where chapter 1 really ends. Now, of course, when you marry someone who is chronically unfaithful, what's bound to happen? She's going to be unfaithful. And so Gomer begins to whore herself out, as the scripture tells us, and she becomes a prostitute again. She starts to leave the faithful household of Hosea, and she goes and does her own thing, and she becomes enslaved to all these other people, and, and she lives a life of prostitution, effectively. Right? She chooses to not remain faithful to Hosea, but to move on and go back to the life as she had known it and lived it. And she leaves Hosea. She leaves Hosea, she leaves his family, she leaves their children, and she goes and lives a life of whoredom once again. And then after some time, the Lord again comes back to speak to Hosea once more in chapter 3. So let's stand again real quick. This is the only other time I'll make you stand. We'll have some small references later, but we're not going to get all Catholic up in here. But here is chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver in a homer and lethach of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Again, the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So here God comes back to Hosea again. He says, look, that, that woman I told you to marry, and he's like, yeah, she was trouble. He says, yeah, I know. Um, I need you to go pursue her and get her back. And at this point, Hosea's got to be thinking, Seriously? I, I married the woman I didn't want to marry. You told me I needed it. That's not who I was looking for. She did what everybody knew she was going to do. I thought she was gone. Now you're telling me I got to go get her? And so the Lord says, yeah. And so he goes and he seeks her out and he finds her and she is indebted to a whole bunch of men. And what we hear then is Hosea doesn't just come and offer her forgiveness and a second chance. He doesn't just bring her back into his family fold. He actually has to buy off her debts. So he doesn't just offer forgiveness he actually buys her back into freedom to be able to even take her back. There's far more than an emotional cost here associated. And, I, you know, we can talk about adjusted for in inflation, but it was not a cheap price. 
Right. I'm not going to get into the exact currency ideas of, of shekels of silver and, and barley and what that's worth today and whatever the commodities are, but it was worth a lot. He didn't just pay like six bucks to get her back. Right? This was an expensive endeavor to get his wife back, but he buys her back. And then he gives this speech to Gomer in which we see finally kind of what the point of this passage is. The relationship between Hosea and Gomer is meant by God to serve as a microcosm of something bigger. And that bigger thing is actually meant to serve again as a microcosm for something even bigger inside of biblical history. We see this in the way the rest of the book is laid out. And when you go home this week and read it, here's what I want you to pay attention to. The remainder of his book is poetic writing. Once we get to chapter 4 through 14, and it splits itself into two kind of repeating patterns. The first set, chapters 4 through 11, and then 12 through 14. The first set is him in poetic form pronouncing a whole bunch of judgments upon the nation Israel. And then in chapter 11, there's a poem of hope. And then again, 12 and 13 is a pronouncement of judgment on Israel. And 14 is again a poem of hope that concludes the book. And so there's two separate times that Hosea judges through poetic way the, the nation of Israel. The first time... He speaks judgment specifically against them in their current state. He accuses them of things like worshiping Baal. He accuses them of things like hypocrisy. He accuses them of selling themselves out to other kingdoms. They're putting their hope and faith in things like military might. They're making alliances with the kingdoms that eventually are going to take them over. Instead of relying on God to be their victory and their strength. right? And so all those things that they're currently doing, Hosea condemns them for. Verse 11, or chapter 11, poetry of hope. And then in 12 and 13, Hosea goes back to the Israelite history. He goes back all the way to Genesis and Exodus and Numbers, and he starts to recount all the ways that the Israelites have been unfaithful there. And so he's saying, look, you're hor horrifically unfaithful right now in this kingdom. And by the way, you have a history of unfaithfulness since the moment you were conceived as a nation by the Lord. Even before that, he goes back to like Jacob and Esau. He says, look, from the very beginning, before I ever actually made you into a nation in the desert, the people of Israel have this history of unfaithfulness, and the Lord is going to punish it eminently. You need to watch out. Judgment is coming. That's the very way the book flows. And then each time, chapters 11 and 14, there is a kind of a but hope piece that gets attached to both of those judgments. Right? There will come a time when that judgment ends. Here's just an excerpt of it from, from uh, Hosea 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? This is the Lord speaking. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils with me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy the Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. We see here that the life of Hosea, that God calls him to, the things that God commands him to do, the choices he commands him to make, the family that he commands him to create, is meant to be a picture of the way that God relates to Israel. 
Hosea takes to love a wife he knows to be inherently unfaithful. And when she does what everyone knows she was going to do, he doesn't relent. He goes after her, which she doesn't deserve, and he buys off her debts to get her back. And in the same way God calls Israel to be his people in the book of Exodus, knowing that they will be a flawed, faithless, disobedient people who live lives of rebellion because it's in their sinful nature. But he calls them to himself anyway. And in Scripture, God and, and the church, God and his people are referenced and, and metaphored as the, the, the bridegroom and the bride. Right? We are the bride of Christ. And so this wedding analogy carries over. Just like Hosea took himself an unfaithful wife and relentlessly loved her in all of her unfaithfulness, so God takes himself a nation and relentlessly loves it in the midst of all of his unfaithfulness. And when Israel did what they inevitably did and fell away over and over and over again, what does God do? He buys them back. He restores them. Yes, there's punishment. Right? There's an anger of the Lord. There's an exile that takes place. But the exile doesn't last forever. And God uses Hosea's own life to prepare him to deliver a message of hope and redemption. The very life that Hosea leads is the gospel story played out in the real world in a small way, which then is a microcosm of the way that the story is played out in Israel in a large way. And it's quite unconventional, but sometimes that's just how God likes to operate, isn't it? Unconventional. And here's what's more. Hosea is a picture of Israel, but Israel is a picture for us. God created you and called you his. He made you his, knowing that you would be a rebellious sinner that would walk and stray naturally from the Lord in his ways. He created you for his glory, knowing that you would forsake his glory, that you would start to go after the things of this world. And still he made you, and still he loves you, and still he cares for you. And then when you actually rebelled, which we all do and did, which every one of us has done, what does he do? Does he punish sin? Yeah, sometimes. But he doesn't allow hardship to be the final word, does he? What does he do? His response to our rejection of him is to send his son to die for our sins in order to buy us back in the midst of our unfaithfulness. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you and me and all of us. You and I are entirely unworthy of this. We have hoard ourselves out to the world and other gods, so to speak. And we have walked in wickedness and strayed from God's way. But God chooses to buy us back and not leave us the way that we deserve to be left. And so the book of Hosea is a picture of a picture of a beautiful reality that you and I get to live as followers of Christ each and every day. Because of the immense love of God, we shall one day be restored. That's the promise of Hosea 11, 11. I shall return them to their homes, says the Lord. And indeed, that is precisely what the Lord will do. One day, he will come back and he will return all of us home. He will restore every single one of us into the fullness of who we were originally created and meant to be apart from the sin of this world. That's the message of not just the book of Hosea, but the life of Hosea. 
It's a beautiful picture that the Lord uses an entire life and family to illustrate what he'll do to Israel on a small scale and to the whole world, including all of us on a big scale. Because God is a God of redemptive love despite the people's unfaithfulness. And that's the gist of the book of Hosea. My hope is that over the next few months we might wrestle with our faithlessness a little bit. But we'd also relish in the hope. That's really the the point of most of the minor prophets in some way, shape, or form, is as we look at these, there's ways that the people remind us of our sinfulness, but also the hope that comes. And my hope is that as we go through these next 12 weeks, that we will prepare ourselves in understanding that, so that when we get to Advent, we start to look at the hope through Jesus to come. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for the life and the words of Hosea. We thank you that you brought him out as a prophet, that you called him to faithfulness in the midst of a faithless kingdom. We praise you that you used his life to teach us, to shape us, to mold us, to remind us of your truth and your grace and your love. Lord, we pray that we might be a people that faithfully seek after you. We pray that we might be a people that understand your gift and take it to heart and live out the gospel that reigns over our lives for all of us who call upon you. Thank you that you call us. Thank you that in our whoredom and faithlessness that you chose to redeem us, to buy us back, to love us as a faithful husband would. We pray for the day when you come again and we can all live without sin, in a new kingdom, a new heavens, and a new earth. We long for that day. We love you, and we praise you. And all his people said,